You're joining us in the midst of our series where we're looking at knowing our purpose in God's mission. And you know, many of us have many thoughts on what that is and what it's about. But for the follower of Jesus, we should always understand that the central narrative to our faith is this, that, is that God is on a mission to redeem and renew His creation. That's what God is about. He's on a mission to redeem and renew His creation. And your life can either promote be ambivalent to, or be in active opposition to that mission. There's, those are the only three options you have. You're either with him, not caring about what he's doing, or in active opposition to what he's up to. And you, as a follower of Jesus, are invited, actually more or less not just invited, you're called to be a part of it and to be promoting whatever God is doing in the lives of other people. You're supposed to contribute in some way to his mission. And so far on this journey, as we've been looking at this kind of subject, we've been learning lessons from individual characters in the Bible. And today's message, we're kind of broadening that out a little bit. We're not looking at one person per se, but we're looking at a group of people, and we're going to be looking at the early church, the apostles, and how they responded to their call to be obedient to God. And so our subject today is called the path of obedience, or the path to obedience. Obedience to God uh, obedience to a God who loves us, nonetheless to say, is sounds pretty good, sounds, sounds awesome. Yet obedience in any type always comes with a cost. Even a child who's out playing with their friends knows that obedience comes with a cost. They know this dilemma, um, the dilemma of being out with your friends and the temptation to get up to all sorts of mischief or to obey the rules of mom and dad. As a young boy in Johannesburg, I dare say, I tended to err on the mischief side of things with said stone-throwing incidents and deflating of car tires in the neighborhood, which shall remain unnamed and no dates will be given. But in those times that I refused to do what my friends wanted to do because I knew my parents would be especially displeased with that particular type of behavior, maybe stealing or something like that, the label of mommy's boy or any other form of child persecution would shortly follow that and you would know the price of obedience to your parents because your friends would start giving you a hard time and making fun of you. Obedience always has a cost. And the same rule applies to those of us who are adults trying to live our life with God. Even Mary, the first witness to Jesus' resurrection, had to deal with the cost of being obedient. The Lord himself said to her, go and tell my brothers that I am risen, knowing full well that nobody was going to believe her. But he told her to do it anyway. And what did she do? Probably knowing that folk wouldn't believe her, having a hunch that she wouldn't believe because she was a she, because woman's testimony didn't count in those days. She still went off and did what Jesus told her to do and told everybody he was risen. And they thought she was crazy, right? She paid the price of obedience. The same can be said of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, uh, one of the greatest books in the Bible. You read Jeremiah and think, wow, what a prophet. But when you go look and dig deeper to Jeremiah, you realize that Jeremiah had this massive church of one. He preached a whole nation and one person listened to him, right? That's pretty sucky, right? That's rubbish, okay? And he wasn't rubbish at his ministry. Just nobody wanted to hear God's word at that time. He was called to preach God's message to a nation who would refuse to listen to him because that nation wanted to be left in their sin. They weren't interested in the ways of God. And so he was ridiculed and persecuted. 
And yet, in the end, he remained faithful to God's call in his life because he understood this one thing. The path of obedience is more important than the path of convenience. And that is what we want to look at today as we discover knowing and living out our purpose in God. So just praise me quickly before we get to our reading today. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are committed to us. We thank you that we can know that because we see it in the life of Jesus. Your son who laid down all his majesty, lived a humble life and was willing to suffer for our sake. And so this morning as we begin to consider what you ask of us in return and how you ask us to, to follow you and be willing to pay similar prices, Lord, would you increase our faith, increase our boldness and draw us nearer to yourself. Give us what we need to be able to say yes to you, a fresh revelation of your love for us, a, a revelation of your goodness to us. And I pray also that you guide my words this morning, make them from you. Anything not of you, Lord, we pray, would be forgotten in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 5. Otherwise, it's going to be on the screen behind me, and you can follow it there. <laughs> a little bit of introduction to the context. Uh, the scene is in Jerusalem, not long after Jesus' resurrection. So what's been happening is the Spirit has fallen at Pentecost, Weird and wonderful things are happening. People are getting healed. People are getting delivered from demons. Uh, occasional resurrection. All these things are going on. And the apostles are meeting daily in houses and all that kind of stuff as the church is, is exploding. But they're also meeting in the temple. And they're preaching the gospel. They're telling people that Jesus is risen. They're telling them that even though he's been crucified, he's up. He's around about. He's at the side of the Father. And, and, and the, the works of the kingdom and the, the demonstration of the kingdom is coming along with their messages. The, the powers that be, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not too keen on this because they were pretty keen getting Jesus crucified in the first place. They find out about this, drag the apostles in and say, okay, listen, stop with this nonsense. Stop preaching about Jesus. Otherwise, there's going to be problems. Threat, threat, threat. Apostles are like, okie dokie. They send them out. Next thing they do, they go straight back to the same old business, preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus. This is where we pick it up. You know, all the miracles are happening. And so it says this in verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were, who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy at what was going on in the people following uh, uh, the apostles. And so they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. 
We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. This was the cue for the apostles to start being like diplomatic, right? Time to think fast on the feet, butter up the high priest, maybe get him on our side. Because this is obviously a dude that's agitated. But this is what really happens. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed. Right? It's like great stuff, taking it to the next level. By hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Predictably, the Sanhedrin now descends into uproar. Uh, All the Sadducees are upset. People are agitated. They want to go out and they want to stone the apostles. Everybody's, it's, it's about to go down. Then one dude called Gamaliel stands up and hushes everybody down and turns around to the rest of the Sanhedrin and says, look, guys. If we go, steal, go kill these guys and make a martyr of them, all it's going to do is secure what they're doing. The people are going to get upset, and this thing's going to escalate, and there's just going to be problems. He says, look, long story short, he goes, if this is really of God, there's nothing we can do to stop it. And if it isn't of God, it's going to go the same way that every other small group that has risen up before has gone. It's just going to peter out, and it's going to die. So I suggest we just leave these guys and see what God does. This word of reason, the Sanhedrin goes, okay, fair point, sounds good, right? And this is where it takes off in verse 40. It goes, his speech persuaded them. So you think, hey, the apostles are off scot-free again. So they called in the apostles and had them flogged instead, right? You know, easy-ozy. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Thanks, God, for your word. And so, they, you know, hard-headed disciples these guys were. So there's a few things I want to bring out of that text today that we can learn from. First one is this. There's different strokes for different folks. What do I mean by that? Well, there are a variety of responses to the presence of the kingdom of God in your life. Right? Even if you're the best Christian and you're doing everything right and you're loving everybody, there's going to be a variety of responses to you. Not all of them are going to be good. Not, any, not everybody is going to respond well to the good news of Jesus that you might share with them. Responses to the words and works of Jesus include acceptance, gratitude, jealousy, antagonism, fear, and pride. When you talk about the gospel, what responses do you expect from people? We all, re- we all expect different responses, don't we? That's why we're nervous about talking about the gospel to people, right? You know, what responses do you personally receive mostly when you speak about these things? You know, humanity is in dire need of the gospel. You know, this is what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that humanity is blind. Why else would it seek to legally define a 36-year-old, a 36-week-old child in the womb as a non-person? Why would we seek to do that if we weren't blind to the importance of life? Or view one person as worth more than another because of perceived physical beauty or ethnicity? 
It's blindness. People are blind to the ways of God. And so the ways that people oppress each other and and do weird things are countless because they don't understand that God has created humanity in His image. We're supposed to reflect something amazing. Now, some people are actually aware of this blindness about them. They're aware of this sin nature inside them, and they're desperately looking for some good news. They're desperately looking for hope. Others don't think that way. In fact, some people, when they're confronted with the claims of the gospel, even the good news of what Jesus has to say, they're just outright offended and, and just reject that gospel outright. And so sometimes you encounter some form of confrontation. This is what was happening with the apostles. And these come when you and I, the church at large, speak about the gospel. And sometimes it just happens when we're quietly living out the gospel and teaching one another to be faithful to the teachings of Jesus. And some people, when offended, will exert pressure on us to stop living that way or stop talking about these things. And that pressure can come in various forms. But for the follower of Jesus, we're called to disregard that pressure. In fact, we're called to rebel against it and continue doing whatever it is that God has asked of us. Because God's will takes priority. Even if there's going to be a price to pay. I was reading this week, I'm going off script now, uh, about, you know, there's this organization that talks about, you know, the gospel and how it's doing in the Middle East and all these hard-to-reach places. And there's a story of a a new believer in Egypt that they met. And basically what had happened is this believer had heard that one of his cousins had converted to Christianity in Cairo. And this was an absolute shame on the family. And so he was sent to Cairo by the family to see if this rumor was true. And if the rumor was true, his job was to murder his cousin for bringing shame on the family, right? In some places, in some parts of the world where Islam is strong, that's kind of like if, if you leave Islam or you step into some sort of sin, you bring shame on your family. So it's up to the family to go and kill you to bring honor back to the family. So anyway, he shows up. He goes to this church, and he sees his cousin sitting in a pew, goes, and he slips in quietly behind him and begins thinking, oh, this is true. I'm going to have to kill him now. But the problem is, is once the service starts and the people are singing worship and, and they're speaking different words and, and the, preach, the, the message is getting preached, he finds something really weird happens to him. He doesn't find what's going on in the room a revulsion to him. The worship doesn't disgust him. In fact, it intrigues him. Next thing he knows, he's starting to get emotional. He's starting to cry. And he begins to realize that he's hearing the truth. And at the end of the service, he's turned around to his, God, his, his cousin. He says, I don't know what to do. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to kill you, but I want to know more about Jesus. And so his cousin takes him back to his place. They talk about the gospel for the rest of the day. And the next day, he gives his life to Jesus. He says, okay, I came to kill anybody who associated the name with Jesus. Now I'm willing to die. And so the story goes on to say, now, now the two cousins are banded together, and they're in hiding. You know, they're not, because in Egypt, you've got to be careful. The church is like sneaking around and all these kind of things, especially converts, you know. And so there's this, there's this notion that God is taking priority in his life. He's starting to be a worshiper of Jesus and trying to find ways to make that happen in his context, even though his life is at risk. You and I, thankfully, don't have those problems. So God's will takes priority in our life. You know, it's, it's an easy thing to say, isn't it? But from our story that I've just said, it's harder. Because there's, there's this reality is that every single one of us in this room struggles with that, that teaching of God's will taking priority over everything in life. I struggle with it. You probably struggle with it in some way. 
All of us want people to accept us. We're made that way. We're made for community. All of us at some point will ignore God's agenda for our lives because we believe that the person in front of us will be offended by God's beliefs or what God calls us to. And we want that person's approval in that moment more than we want God's. Probably everybody in this room can think of a time when you've done that. So in what ways have you had a a proclivity towards pleasing people instead of pleasing God? What issue or thing are you tending to compromise on so that somebody else will like you? Are you letting God down in some way so that you do not have to be disliked or even hated by other people? Whatever it is, we have to overcome these things in our lives in order to step into the purpose that God has for us. This is the tough road of discipleship. You know, here in the West, we don't have to endure that that much. But in other places, it's a lot rougher for other people. Obedience to God comes at a personal cost to our ease, our comfort, and sometimes even our personal wants. Because to be an authentic disciple, we have to be increasingly willing to pay the prices of obedience in order to grow in God. We have to move forward on that path all the time. Sometimes it's easy, good times. Sometimes it's difficult. Why bother? Why would we want to bother to press through when it's difficult? Well, the answer to that question is because Jesus is important. Because Jesus is important. Every time you're wondering about your faith, wondering what it's about, why, why bother even making a change? This is the answer. Because Jesus is important. Go and read the Gospels. Look at Jesus. Look at what he says. Look at what he claims. In the spiritual realm, the physical realm, the universe, whatever, however you want to look at everything, you know, Jesus is more important in the world right now than you can ever know. We're temporal beings. We don't understand eternal consequences as much as we try. Jesus has suffered and overcome for the world. He suffered and overcome for you personally. And the most important thing in all the universe to God is that he be reconciled to as many people as as possible. That is his main task in all creation. God wants to be reconciled to as many people as possible. He wants to forgive them for their sin, and he wants to bring them out of their sin, and he wants to bring them into new life. That is what God is about. We are about lots of things. Sometimes we're about what God wants to do, but sometimes we're about a bigger house. Sometimes we're about a nicer car. Sometimes we want more a bigger pay job. Sometimes we have to compromise to get that bigger paying job. Whatever it is, because we're temporal beings. You know, we feel pain. You stick a needle in your hand, you feel it. So what do you want to do? You're not going to stick a needle in your hand. You know, we have a hamster in our house. I'm going to tell this story. We had a little toddler in our house who wanted to stick their finger in the hamster's cage. We told the little toddler, don't put your finger in the hamster's cage because the hamster's going to bite you, right? So he's like, no, 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 whatever. Yeah, didn't believe us. Stuck his finger in the hamster's cage. What happened? Got bit. Don't worry, it was fine. It's a tiny hamster, small bite. It's all good, right? Nobody went to hospital. Everything's fine. But that's what we are as people. We, we, we sometimes encounter pain. We don't want to go back to it. We do what we need to, not to stick our fingers back in the cage, right? But sometimes God is asking us to stick our fingers in a cage, you know, however that may work. But so, so God is concerned with different things. We are concerned with the temporal, but God is concerned with the internal. He wants to bring people close to himself. He wants to be reconciled to his 
his, um, his creation. And so we have this, this issue that we need to work through. We need to work through this issue of not being afraid of people being offended by Jesus and his demands. Rather, we have to care about Jesus being offended when we act in such a way that says we don't think that his call and his agenda are good enough for the people around us. And that is often how we live our faith. We look at the people around us and go, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I've sacrificed everything in my life to, to follow him. But you know what? I'm not going to put, I'm, I'm, I don't want to put that on this person because something in you feels like Jesus isn't good enough for them. We wouldn't put it in those words, but that's how we behave sometimes. That's how we are. And so we have to ask ourselves this question over and over again. Do we believe that the gospel is the power of God to save the whole life of a person? Do we believe that? Do we believe the gospel is powerful enough to save our whole lives? This is a question we have to wrestle with all the time as followers of Jesus. And when we do believe it and we're all in and we surrender ourselves to it, we encounter it. And then other times we dab out. And so when you're living this life of purpose and trying to follow God and trying to figure out how to get through all these, these, these conundrums, you have to ask yourself the question, what is God asking of you now? Who is it that God's brought into your life and surrounded you by that you might proclaim, or maybe they're not, listen, they're not ready to hear it, but demonstrate at least the, the good news of Jesus to you in some way of serving them? You know, And I dare say to do that with wisdom. Let's jump over to First Peter before we move on. First Peter 3 verse 15 says this, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And so I want to do a caveat right here, you know, because we live in the South and certain things go down in the South here when people want to make a stand for their faith, right? When I say be faithful to God and obey whatever God's asking you to do and, 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 and live, be willing to talk about the gospel, I don't say do what we've traditionally done here in the South where we corner somebody, get the biggest Bible we can and ram it down their throat as hard as we can until they repent. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm talking about being obedient to God in your life, living out the, the ways of God in your life. And then when, people are, when you're talking to people and you have an opportunity to talk about your life, your experience in God, and you feel it might be appropriate, you share your faith in a way that's personal to you. You don't, you don't pick a fight to win. You pick a person to care about. You understand the difference? Here in the South, traditionally, we've picked on a fight to win, Right? You're a dirty, rotten sinner. I want you to know how bad you are. No. Right? The gospel is like you were starving and you found a place to find bread. Now you go out and you find the other starving people and you invite them to come and get some bread. And when they say they don't want to get the bread, you don't beat them up on the street corner because they don't want bread. You just go find the next person who wants bread. Okay? That's how it works. And so, so Peter's very careful, even though this is the same guy who you know, was picking a fight with the Sanhedrin, when he's talking to the rest of us, he's saying, hey, remember, when you're sharing the hope of Jesus in you, do it in a way that's gentle and with respect. Care about people. Love people in the way you present the gospel to them. That's in the way you speak, and sometimes that's just in the way you behave. So that's, remember that bit. 
back to obedience. What else can we say about being obedient to God? And this is my final point. Obedience releases the saving power of God to work in and through your life. I remember when Rachel and I were praying about bringing our family here from Scotland, and anybody who's ever moved their family will know this, this dilemma. And we were really concerned about how the move would affect our children, you know, moving them away from their friends, from, from family, and coming all the way over here and starting over again. And so while we were praying about that and kind of agonizing over that, Rachel had a picture of a plant being uprooted from where it was, and placed in, in a new place. And in that picture, the plant flourished more than what it would have done in the old location. And we felt God was very clearly saying to us that our obedience was key to our children living the best life that He has for them. And you know, sometimes the best life that God has for you might not be exactly what you thought it was. Sometimes it might mean sacrificing something and moving on to another place. And so, we have found that to be true. Since we've moved here, knowing our children, watching them grow, they have flourished more than what we feel they would have done back where we came from. Back from and the neighborhood we're in, the circles that we're in, we know that our children have, have been able to grow beyond what they could have grown had we remained in that place. Now, there is no doubt that there have been some hardships along the way. Our kids have had to go through hardships to encounter that growth and encounter that flourishing. Probably hardships that they wouldn't have had to go through had we stayed in Scotland. But it's been good for them. And all along that time, we've had to keep digging back into God, keep praying to Him, because we've needed His help to overcome those challenges. And so, obedience brings more of God into our lives. But at the same time, it can make some situations tougher. You know, today's text is a reminder of that, that even uh, when things get hard, we've got to press in and be faithful to Him. You know, because, you know, God at times does liberate us, and at all other times, He empowers us to endure whatever He's asked us to do. You know, today's text. You see, the, you see the apostles, they're doing what God asked them. They, do get, they get arrested. They're like, oh no, they're stuck in jail. Jail was pretty unpleasant in those days. You know, no TV. Okay. Next thing you know, an angel shows up and gets them out of there like, fantastic angel. Go out and keep presenting the gospel to people. So they go out, they present it, and they get arrested again. So this time they're in front of the Sanhedrin again, and they're probably expecting, hey, maybe an angel's going to show up again this time. right? And in a way, an angel does show up because uh, the, the group want to kill them. Somebody convinces them not to do that, but they still end up getting flogged. Okay, Being flogged, there's no walk in the park. right? Does anybody want to go get flogged on Tuesday? Go find somebody at a fence, say, let's go get us a good flogging. No, nobody wants to do that. You run away from things like that. But, you know, the disciples went through that and continued to be obedient to God. And unlike us, they, they were like, they were excited about it. Okay. I don't know what that is, right? I don't know, maybe they had a deeper dispensation of the Spirit than we've got. But they got whipped, and then afterwards they're like, fantastic, we got whipped for Jesus. What a good day. I'm like, I don't know. I've got a high pain threshold. I think I'd be whimpering in a corner and like saying, Jesus, why did you let me hit me? You know, something along those lines. That tends to me might be my fallback whenever things get tough, you know. Why did you bring me here? You know. 
So sometimes it's tough, but still, maybe this is why they endured that. They got more of God. They had, a, they had an awareness of His presence that was deep and meaningful. And so, you know, this is the positive side of things. Obedience is key to the presence of God. You know, churches who are obedient to what God is asking them to do always have a deeper sense of God's presence in their midst. Churches that don't, don't. It's that simple. And I think all of you have been in those differing environments. You know, here at the Vineyard, we're not just satisfied to get people saved for them to be forgiven of their sins. You know, we want the more of God. I don't know if you know what I mean when I say that. We want the promised restoration of relationship with God. We want to know and experience the peace that transcends all understanding that is mentioned in the Bible. I want to know the peace of God in my life. I want to know the deep contentment that comes to following Jesus. I don't, I don't want just my sins to be forgiven. I want the more of God. I want that deeper stuff that the Bible talks about, that the disciples encountered. You know, we worship a God who can be known, and so we want to know Him. I hate going into places where people are worshiping God, but I get the feeling that they don't really want to know Him. They just want Him to forgive their sins and leave it at that. I'm like, why? Why would you bother? Might as well just go out and sin. I don't understand that. I want the deeper, the deeper revelation of God. I want to know Him. You know, it's like this. You can only know the full power of a river, right, if you just give yourself over to it and jump in and go, go down with the flow, right? Now, that's a dangerous thing to do, right, because rivers are rough sometimes. But once you're in, you'll know its depth. You'll know its power. You'll know how awesome it is much more than what you would have just by standing at the side and looking at it. And it's the same with God. You can only know the fullness of God's presence in your life when you give yourself over to Him and jump in by surrendering all you have to Him. But know this, it's dangerous. But it's awesome. It will cost you, but what you get is worth more than the cost. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise of Jesus. He says, follow me, and I will give you life in all its fullness. Right? Now, the apostles understood that when they got flogged. They got flogged, but they had life in all its fullness, and they rejoiced at being flogged. Now, we don't have to really face that, thankfully, nowadays. But, you know, we face other difficulties. And so, when we give ourselves over to Jesus, we get the presence. When we obey the Lord we get the presence. We get the joy that everybody's looking for in all other manners of, of, of the things that people do in life. And this is, this is what we have to remember. You know, living out your purpose, knowing your purpose in God requires obedience. But obedience comes with a pearl. And that pearl is the presence of God in your life. It's the joy of God in your life. It's the peace of God in your life. It's the reconciliation of God in your life. It's knowing your identity in your life. It's being well. It's like the, the Jews in the Old Testament have this word for peace. It's called shalom. We, transword it, we translate the word peace into English. But the thing about the word peace, when we think about the word peace, we think of everybody's chill, right? Everybody's peace. We're all okay. But the word shalom means way more than that. It means total well-being of your soul and your entire body. Shalom. Just like 
you know, being sat on a, on a recline and going, I am good. Everything is good with me. I am going to sit here until someone rips me out of this chair because all is well with my soul. Okay? That is the peace of the presence of God. When people know it, it's like a drug. They want to go back to it all the time. They'll go through anything to have it. And so, you know, look back on your faith journey, you know, as long as it might be or as short as, short as, as it is. You know, what ways can you testify to knowing glimpses of that peace, glimpses of that presence in your life? You know, in moments when you said yes to God and no to somebody else. Did, did you encounter that? Have you had a taste of it? Because there's, there's way more for you to have. When in your life have you had that moment of surrender which came with that taste of life, of the faithfulness of God, the peace of God, the love of God, the restoration of God in your soul? If you've had that, I encourage you to write it down and remember those good moments, especially when you get to your next dilemma. Because your next dilemma will always come, whatever it is. And in those moments, you need to remember the goodness of God and how he's reached it out to you. And then you will want to want that for other people, but you'll want more for yourself. And so that's the challenge as we, as we head off today is that, you know, when you're tempted to disobey God or tempted to uh, compromise your faith, remind yourself of the times when you, when you didn't compromise and it worked out well. Remind yourself that, you know, God's will takes priority over our will, that God is on a mission that is bigger than anything we can comprehend. And then also know that the key to knowing His presence, to knowing the depths of the riches of relationship with God, come with obedience. This is the price that we have to pay for that. But it's worth it, because when you get to the other side, you'll, you'll have a joy that you never understood before. You'll have a peace that transcends all understanding. You know, this is the good thing about God is He's not a God in heaven who says, obey me and do what I say or I'll, I'll smoke you. He's not, he's not that way. He's the God of the big carrot. He says, hey, obey me. I've got this massive carrot for you and you're like a dumb donkey and I'm going to feed this carrot to you and it's going to be the best thing you've ever had. You know, because most people like it. We act like dumb donkeys, don't we? We live that way. We do stupid stuff all the time, right? That's why we disobey God because we're just not that bright. But God's offering us this carrot. He's saying, look, I'll give you my presence. And you were created for that presence. You were created to know God. You were created to be loved by God and to encounter his presence. And when you do, you encounter that thing called shalom. You just know his peace and his wonder. And that's what he's inviting you into today. Hey, Kiara, do you want to come on up? You're here. Worship team. Somebody coming up. There she is. Just in time. We need you. It's provision. Right. Would you uh, stand with me if you're able? And uh, let's invite God's presence into the room. If you're a guest with us here at the Vineyard, we just um, end all of our services with a time of response. We call it ministry time. And uh, we just invite God's presence to make himself known. And... Uh, Maybe you've come in today and you're dealing with something that's got nothing to do with what I've spoken about. And so this is just your moment to invite God into that area of your life. You know, maybe you're sick in your body and you want God to heal you. We believe that happens here at the vineyard. And so our prayer team will come down in a minute. 
And so just as we're closing with our song, you can just head on down and uh, one of them will come up and pray for you.